another is with a general Chinese success in the competition where, you know, China overtakes the United States as the most powerful country in the world and the world accommodates itself to that outcome. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. Since the turn of the century, China's economic, political and military strength has risen meteorically from international institutions and trade relationships to telecommunications networks and public perceptions, China is increasingly garnering influence and in some cases, control. This rise to dominance has prompted a dramatic rethink of US foreign policy strategy and ignited a global campaign for influence known in 2020 as the US-China competition. So, through what vectors is this competition taking place? What are the potential outcomes of competition? Is this really a new Cold War and most importantly, Will the United States win? To help us answer these questions, to end the podcast, we're joined by Mr. Richard Fontaine. Richard Fontaine is the chief executive officer of the Center for New American Security. He served as president of CNAS from 2012 to 2019, and as a senior advisor and senior fellow from 2009 to 2012. Prior to CNAS, he was foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain and worked at the State Department, the National Security Council, and on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Mr. Fontaine, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We would like to start off with the basics. What does foreign policy, what does the foreign policy community actually mean when they say U.S.-China competition? Like, what are the vectors of this new competition with China? Well, the overall competition is for influence, um, primarily in the broader Indo-Pacific region, but really globally and also in international institutions and things like that. And there's various, various vectors through which the competition is being waged. There's military, diplomatic, economic, technological um, information. And so each of these um, is becoming uh, an area where the United States and China are competing for advantage, kind of an area for rivalry. And, um, and, and new vectors are emerging as well. Before the coronavirus pandemic, um, many people had pointed specifically to global health as an area of potential cooperation between the United States and China. Uh, but so far into the coronavirus pandemic, it's actually emerged as just one new vector of competition where the United States and China are acting more as rivals than as um, partners on anything. And competition, of course, if conducted irresponsibly, can oftentimes spiral into confrontation and conflict between nations. Now, with that danger in mind, why should nations compete in the first place at all? Well, they compete, I think, naturally for influence, um, given that you know countries have an obvious interest in their own security and the prosperity of their economies and so forth. Um, and that is doubly true uh, when you have the ideological dimension of the competition as you do to some degree between the United States and China. And the United States could, I suppose, say that because of the dangers of uh, competition spiraling out of control into conflict, uh, that it won't uh, compete with China, that it won't push back uh, against the Chinese activity in various domains and things like that. The problem with that um, is that uh, a region, an Indo-Pacific region that is dominated by China and a world that is dominated by China would be a worse world for the United States and for Americans. 
um, who, you know, cherish uh, their basic freedoms and, and rights at home and uh, want to see their allies and, um, and partners around the world uh, be able to choose their own forms of government and have basic freedoms and rights there as well and not be subject to economic coercion uh, and so forth. So um, you're right that you have to have boundaries around a competition because if it's an unbounded competition, it can get dangerous. Um, but to not compete at all would be essentially a form of capitulation. Mr. Fontaine, from Hong Kong to the South China Sea to border disputes of India, we have seen a noticeable increase in Chinese assertiveness in international relations since COVID-19 began. Why do we think that we're seeing this now? Well, I think that there's a couple things going on. One, uh, and, and different factors can explain, I think, different parts of what you're seeing. So you saw the Chinese move to essentially eliminate Hong Kong's um, separate political system, the border uh, flare up with India, tensions with Taiwan, tensions in the, over the Senkakus with Japan. Um, and you can go around and around. There's other elements as well. Uh, I mean, when, when China's in a, in a diplomatic fight with Canada, you know that things have, have uh, moved in a, in a new direction. Um, and so it's a good question. Why is all this happening all at the same time? And why is it happening now? And I think there's a couple things going on. One is, you know, the coronavirus started in Wuhan, China and, uh, and, and broke out there and then spread to the rest of the world. And China was very keen, Beijing was very keen to recast the narrative from uh, a China at fault that was uh, seen by the world as a bad actor uh, and, and recast that into uh, one where China would be seen as something else, you know, a, a, a country that got hold of the virus and stamped it out rather quickly and that helped other countries and things like that. So to the degree to which countries have criticized China, uh, Beijing has come on strong. So, for example, in Australia, uh, the government expressed support for an independent inquiry into the origins of coronavirus and, and Beijing responded by putting essentially sanctions on the export of some Australian agricultural products as a way to kind of intimidate them away from what the Chinese saw as an implicit criticism. So some of this is related to the narrative. Uh, I think a bigger part of this uh, is related to the Chinese notion that they recovered from coronavirus faster than other countries. The United States is at best looking highly inward and in relative disarray. Uh, most countries in the world are inwardly focused and whatever they might do or say about Hong Kong or some of these other things, uh, over the long run, the Chinese believe that they're gonna, they're gonna win on those issues. And so, you know, if ever was a time to go in and do these things, now is the time. And then, of course, with Hong Kong specifically, it comes at the, you know, toward the end of protests that had gone on for a long time. And there was always a question in the air about how long the authorities in Beijing would let those protests continue without a crackdown. And I think we've now gotten the answer to that question. Mr. Fontaine, something that I've noticed in kind of my own readings um, about this issue recently has 
honestly been that to me, it seems like the, this new kind of assertive policy coming out of China is, is doing a bad job. So for example, in the UK, they, they reversed their initial, um, decision on Huawei and they banned Huawei 5G in Australia. They have, uh, increased, um, an investigation into political interference in India. There's reports that they are also going to ban Huawei 5G and basically public opinion of China, it seems like has, has gone down globally. So it just, it strikes me as a really poor policy coming out of China if they actually are aiming to get global influence. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I read an um, article for The Atlantic about a week and a half or so ago saying that China had squandered its first great international opportunity because in foreign policy circles, you know, there was always this kind of thought experiment. Let's say that there was a global geopolitical vacuum of leadership. The United States was distracted or not on the center stage. And suddenly China was kind of offered a golden opportunity to strut around the world stage and, 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 you know, offer itself as, as a leader. How would it react? Would it, would it react in a kind of beneficial way and an enlightened self-interest that tried to show that there was, you know, uh, good outcomes for everybody that accorded, uh, that, that accompanied Chinese leadership? Or would they act out of a kind of cramped self-interest that was very defensive, um, highly sensitive to any criticism, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and inadvertently, the world has run that experiment over the first six months of 2020. The United States is uh, not the only country that has been very inwardly focused rather than uh, leading on the global stage for quite obvious reasons. But the United States in particular has been uh, sort of out of the global picture. The various um, uh, global elements like the G7 and the G20 have not been able to actually marshal and the UN Security Council haven't been able to marshal any collective response to, to what's happening and things like that. So this has given China and particularly given that China did recover both um, in terms of health and economics uh, more quickly than others from coronavirus, this gave China an extraordinary opportunity. And in my mind, uh, and I think to your question, uh, they've more or less squandered it. You know, the there's an argument on a couple of these things that I think Chinese leaders would probably make, for example, on Hong Kong and say, hey, look, you know, it's kind of like what happened with Russia and Crimea. Russia took Crimea. The world was outraged. They slapped sanctions. They decried it. They passed resolutions. They issued statements. And you fast forward a few years and guess what? Russia still has Crimea. And people say, well, you know, maybe we can't sanction them forever. And, you know, the and, all, and the, you know, the, the temper is kind of cool and things like that. And so on Hong Kong, I could see them saying, well, look, the world's going to be outraged. But if they're going to be outraged at any point now is better than any other time. And they'll do what they will, but in a few years, we'll have Hong Kong and everything will move on. It's harder really to explain um, some of these other issues in a, in a similar fashion. You know, the, the stirring up this border dispute with India, getting in this, um, you know, slapping these sanctions on Australia. Uh, you know, countries have begun to react, as you pointed out, the UK changed its position on uh, Huawei and 5G. India banned Chinese apps uh, in the country. Uh, Japan has started a, a, a fund to help countries uh, relocate. Uh, I'm sorry, companies relocate 
production facilities from China to Japan kind of reshoring things. Uh, you obviously see what's happening in the United States. And, and so um, I, I think I'll, I think what they have done has been counterproductive uh, in a number of ways. And, um, you know, I think there's multiple explanations for why they've done some of these things, but, you know, thank goodness it hasn't been highly successful. And Mr. Fontaine, so far we have talked about why competition is important. And we've also talked about, um, some of the things that China has been doing to, I guess, grow its assertiveness in the region by challenging our allies in Asia and throughout the world. But I want to now dig a little deeper into your most recent Washington Post piece with Eli Ratner. In it, you argue that using our Cold War toolbox against China would not only be ineffective, but also dangerous. So why is it unhelpful to compare US-China competition now with US-Soviet competition during the Cold War? Yeah, the reason we wrote that Uh, piece in the Washington Post was because we were seeing the debate over U.S.-China relations be compared so frequently to the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, irrespective of where somebody came down on whether that was kind of a good thing or not. So some people would say, look, we're in a new Cold War with the with the the Chinese and just like we did with the Soviets, we need to sort of stand up and do X, Y, and Z. Other people said, no, you know, we can't allow U.S. relations to become like a U.S.-Soviet Cold War. And so in order to prevent that from happening, uh, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And, and, our, um, and our argument was that neither of those things really are right, that, that the Cold War is, is a pretty bad analogy uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, there were unified military and economic blocks in the in, during the the cold war so you had you know the western block and the eastern one you had nato in europe and you had the warsaw pact you had um, very little uh, economic interchange between the two sides and between the two superpowers the united states and the soviet union you had almost no economic interaction i mean the united states sold some wheat to the Soviet Union and some Pepsi and stuff like that, but nobody was buying Soviet cars in the United States or any of this other kind of stuff. So um, you had m fairly unified blocks and then you had a bunch of non-aligned countries that would sometimes fall into one place or the other and, and everything. And it was, a, there was a lot more coherence um, than certainly there is now. And if you look at um, the, situation now, what you have is countries, including the United States, who uh, are worried about Chinese security aspirations and that want, uh, you know, strong uh, U.S. security benefits, for lack of a better term, that also have very deep economic linkages with China. And, you know, if you took the straight Cold War analogy, the first thing somebody might say is, well, where's our Asian NATO? You know, we, we sort of withstood, we contained, we geographically contained the expansion of Soviet communism in Europe by drawing a line in the middle of Europe and having NATO with its tanks on one side of the border and saying, you can't come any further. Why don't we do something like that in Asia? Well, first of all, you're not really talking about territorial expansion the way the Soviet Union pursued territorial expansion and, and outright domination. I mean, you know, Soviet troops in 
and tanks across, you know, Central and Eastern Europe and uh, and parts of Asia and things like that. Um, but you also wouldn't get countries to sign up for that. Why? Because of their economic relationship with China. Uh, you wouldn't be able to build an anti-China NATO if you wanted to. And so the it, it's a less stark, you know, China on one side, the United States on another, American allies on one side, China's allies on another. Uh, that doesn't really describe the kind of competition that we are in with China right now. It's much more differentiated and it's based on issue. And on um, some issues, the United States is in fierce, outright competition with China. On other issues, um, it's more complicated and there are countries on one side or the other. And then there's other issues where, you know, we continue on to have a constructive relationship, for example, on the economic side. So um, if, if you pursue you know, sort of dogmatically, the kind of approaches that worked in the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, I think you'll be left pretty disappointed in the, in the current situation. Mr. Fontaine, I want to expand on that a little bit because I, I think it brings us to the next part of the conversation, which is what should the United States be doing about this uh, specifically? So if we're not using our Cold War toolbox, and as you said, we have to kind of not take as much of a I don't know what the right words are here, but <laughs> like take a more nuanced approach. Could you talk to us a little bit about like where we should be competing, where we should be cooperating and a little more specifics and just maybe explain why those areas are so? Yeah. And here, I think the answer is not one big thing, but many things that the United States needs to do. And, and most of those things, not all, but most of those things have to do with actually enhancing the, the power and standing of the United States, as opposed to just trying to diminish the power and standing of China. So if you go back to those original vectors of competition that we were talking about, each one has got things that the United States can and should be doing um, in order to better kind of, deal with this competition, this competitive dynamic. So on economics, for example, the Chinese have one belt, one road. The United States is trying to respond uh, to that by establishing this development uh, finance corporation, which it has, and kind of working with other countries in order to provide alternatives to um, the kind of Chinese-led infrastructure projects that might pose risks for you know, poorer countries and across the Indo-Pacific um, on technology, you know, we see every, I mean, as recently as the dispute over TikTok and things like that, um, the, the dangers associated with uh, data that would be held in China and the privacy worries and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, th that implies a combination of controls over technology um, you know, investments on the U.S. side in some of the areas that otherwise might be dominated by China, like AI and quantum computing and things like that. You know, on the on the trade side right now, you have uh, two big trade agreements in Asia. You have uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership and you have the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the United States is not party to either of those. That's an obvious omission if you're trying to engage in some economic competition for influence there, uh, you know, certainly on the military side. And so you could go through each of these and identify specifically what 
would put the United States on a firmer footing for this competition. In fact, at my place at the Center for New American Security, uh, we did a congressionally mandated study uh, that came out, um, you know, about six months or so ago, and it laid out very specifically uh, a bunch of things that we believe the United States should be doing on its own with its partners, et cetera, um, in order to better, to be, essentially be more competitive. And in that same vein, Mr. Fontaine, what areas are absolute red lines for the United States that we cannot and should not compromise on? Um, drawing new red lines is always tricky. And as you may have noticed, uh, the American track record in enforcing red lines in the past few years has not exactly been stellar. Um, so, you know, uh, we've had presidents who said that it's a red line for uh, North Korea to get a nuclear bomb that it could put atop an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach the United States until they did that. And then that didn't work. And then you know, we had a president who said that if Syria used chemical weapons, then that would be a red line. <laughs> that wasn't. Um, now, there are some red lines that already exist, right? Protection of American allies um, in Asia, for example. I mean, the United States has five treaty allies in the Philippines, Australia, Thailand, um, South Korea and and Japan. And those have a formal uh, defense commitment to them. So if China were to act aggressively toward them, I mean, that is an absolute red line. The United States um, should and I think would come to their military aid in order to defend them. Um, You know, there's other, I guess, formalized red lines here and there with respect to, you know, the security of the United States and things like that. Um, One thing that I would... Um, have, if not as a red line, then as a very strong um, area in which to um, respond is to protect the American political system against interference. I mean, Russia wrote a, a playbook in 2016, which has continued into 2020 for how um, in an open society like ours, uh, if you want to manipulate it or try to divide us and so therefore weaken us, the thing to do is not to try to, to send tank battalions into the United States. The thing to do is to meddle in our democratic process. And I think that the Russians did that quite effectively in 2016, and they're trying to do a version of that now. We see flickers of the Chinese wanting to do a similar sort of thing, although it's quite different uh, than what the Russians have done. And it's more in the area of influence rather than interference. But if we were to see, you know, outright Chinese interference in our elections or in our political system or something like that, to me, that's a that's a very significant risk to uh, essentially U.S. national security and would be deserving of a absolutely deserving of a response. Mr. Fontaine, now I want to shift focus a little bit to to where U.S. allies and other nations might fall in this competition between the United States and China. Um, You mentioned a little bit that it is unlikely that we'll see the similar block dynamics that we saw in the Cold War. So with that said, what role will and should U.S. allies play in the U.S.-China competition? And what do you expect other non-aligned countries to, to, to determine as their policy? Yeah, so they, they, having allies is one of the biggest um, assets we have. I mean, you know, the United States has five treaty allies 
in the Pacific, as I said, but of course we have um, allies uh, in Europe, in NATO, and and allies of sort of a different sort, not necessarily with a mutual defense uh, agreement, but but that are, have been designated allies in Israel and in the Gulf countries and things like that. So we have allies around the world. And to the degree to which the U.S.-China competition becomes global in nature, though, that is a huge advantage to the United States, especially because if you look at China's allies, North Korea and maybe Cambodia, I mean, who who would whose side would you rather be on? So um, now it's important to note that, as I said, those are not anti-China alliances. These are not alliances that are designed specifically to defend against Chinese aggression or influence or anything like that. And every one of those countries, including the United States, wants to have a productive economic relationship with China. So it's more complicated, certainly, again, than it was during the during the Cold War. That said, all of the kinds of things that allies do can help us in this competition. So sharing information and intelligence, um, you know, military joint exercises and planning and things like that for p- potential contingencies. Um, and getting closer uh, as military establishments, um, you know, coordinating diplomatic responses where that is appropriate to things that um, are happening around the world, um, you know, sharing basic values among the democratic allies that we have, and doing things not just bilaterally, the United States and Japan or United States and Australia, um, but trilaterally and quadrilaterally. And bringing in new partners, India is the the one that is most obvious and, and most important. Um, but you know, other countries that are not allies, but that nevertheless uh, share interests and uh, want to work more closely with the United States on security matters, like Vietnam and Singapore, um, and, and countries like that. So um, there's an entire sort of program of activity that one could imagine for the United States. Uh, to do along with its allies over the next few years that doesn't say, hey, come join us in an anti-China alliance, which is not going to work and wouldn't be the way that it would happen. But instead said, let's have an alliance to jointly protect our security and our interests from any form of interference or or aggression, um, whether it's from China or anywhere else. And, and that, I think, is a, a really important part uh, of the competition and a really important advantage for the United States. Mr. Fontaine, in the past, China has threatened U.S. allies with economic coercion. For example, Beijing has threatened to retaliate against German car manufacturers if Germany were to block Huawei and Huawei's 5G um, developments. So I want to know how should the United States respond to this type of economic coercion from China on our allies? Yeah, there's a couple answers to that question. And I think um, we're just going to see more of this going forward. And it may get harder before it gets easier, in part because, you know, take Europe, for example, the projections are that the European recession will be longer and potentially deeper um, than certainly than Asia's and maybe the North Americas, which gives less of an economic margin uh, to deal with. So that, you know, when you look at potentially taking a foreign policy step that might anger the Chinese and elicit uh, some retaliatory action, whether it's, 
you know, the Chinese buying less of your exports or reducing your access to Chinese capital or whatever, then it makes it that much harder when you're trying to generate jobs and get your economy back on track. Now, that said, I think there's kind of two answers to your question about what the United States should do about it. The first is to sort of look truth in the face. The issue is not, in my mind, that uh, countries can avoid uh, all economic risk associated with taking a foreign policy step that's going to anger in China. It's when do they take that risk? So take Australia, for example. Australia, you know, the, the, the Chinese got mad because Australia called for an independent inquiry into the um, origins of coronavirus. And so China, you know, slaps these these barriers on the export of, of Australian agricultural products. Australia has stayed firm and said, okay, all right, we're going to, we're going to call you on this. We're not backing down. And that might have the effect of telling the Chinese that that kind of stuff just doesn't work with the Australians, in which case that would be a a better outcome for Australia. Had they caved, uh, the risk that they would be coerced would obviously not go away and may only increase because in the Chinese mind, it was a successful gambit. So some of this is to, you know, help our allies and ourselves understand that if you're getting bullied, sometimes you just have to stand up to the bully and take the risk that goes along with it. And it's better to do that on the front end than to to do that indefinitely. So part of this is just standing up for the kinds of uh, positions and beliefs and and security measures that a a country will have. Um, The second is to provide viable alternatives. And here's where it, it, it actually does get difficult because like anything else in life, you have to compare what's available to the alternatives. So, you know, if China's saying Huawei 5G uh, supplies are cheaper, it's one-stop shopping for everything you want. And if you don't, if you exclude it from your networks, then we're going to punish you economically. Okay. Well, that's, 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 might suggest that you buy Huawei. Um, but if you don't want to, then you got to buy something else. And so the question is always, what is the something else? How much does the something else cost? What are the repercussions associated with the buying something else? And that's not just true on 5G. You know, One Belt, One Road, China's giving out, you know, grants and loans and things to support infrastructure building. So a country in Southeast Asia, for example, if you go to it and say, well, you know, we don't think it's a great idea for you to take that loan from China uh, and build that road. They're going to say, OK, well, you're going to build the road for us then, like because we need a road uh, and or we need a bridge or we need whatever. And so um, so the United States and its allies and its partners have to be in the process of uh, generating alternatives to what is offered from from China. Um, but of course, that's easier said than done, particularly when you're talking about um, a, a country who has a command or, a, a, you know, kind of a state capitalism that can mobilize, you know, billions of dollars behind um, its foreign policy choices, you know, almost on a dime. Mr. Fontaine, to wrap us up today, um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, which is what is the kind of end goal here of U.S.-China competition? Like when when, when, how does this end and when does it end? Is it, it, do we have infinite time horizons? Will this be the defining foreign policy issue of France and I's life or 
is this going to be wrapped up in five, six years? Like what, what does that really look like? I wouldn't bet on five or six years. Um, I don't know how long you guys will live, but you know, with your generation, it's probably like 300 years. So that gives you a lot of time to play with. Um, I, I think the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's best to prepare for a long uh, term competition with China. What long term means, I don't know, longer than five or, or 10 years. The, you know, here's where some lessons from the original Cold War actually may be a bit instructive. You know, the, the premise of the containment policy was that either through containment, because of its internal contradictions, the Soviet Union would break up and that's how the Cold War would end, or that it would mellow its ambitions and it would be a different kind of Soviet Union, a sort of kinder, gentler Soviet Union. And then the Cold War would end because we wouldn't be, you know, kind of uh, competing so so fiercely. With China, I, I think it's, a, it's actually, um, it's harder to spell out what it would mean for this to end. I mean, I guess the same uh, factors would theoretically come into play. I mean, China, I can't imagine China breaking up, but I guess it could, um, in which case you're not dealing with U.S.-China competition because it's different you know, elements and fragmented and whatever. Um, or uh, China changes its approach. It changes the ideological impulse. It changes its desires. Um, but it's from this point, it's hard to see that. I mean, and, you know, the, the, the premise of the previous engagement policy was twofold. One was that over time, China would become more of a responsible stakeholder in the international system. It would have more skin in the game and it would realize that it's in its interest to act constructively in terms of its foreign policy, as opposed to uh, assertively or aggressively or sort of, sort of the ways that we object to. Well, that hasn't really happened. And in fact, things have gone backwards from that perspective. So, you know, the experiment thus far does not seem to be the case that time is on the side of, of that happening. And then the other one was that, you know, there would be liberalization internally that, you know, because of access to information via the Internet and because of trading with other countries and because of travel and education and sort of opening up China to the world, that uh, the values that we hold dear in democratic countries would be appealing to China, particularly as it grew its middle class and and it would sort of agitate for greater rights. And so China would become a a more liberal, maybe even more democratic country over time. And of course that has gone backwards too. And so neither of those premises have, have proved correct. So I think the only thing that we can really be certain of now is that um, the United States and China will be, you know, locked in a form of competition for a fairly long duration of time without being able to really put a specific time frame on what that duration of time looks like. Uh, and then uh, that will continue until something changes it. And we can't uh, put a great specificity on what the things are that would change it. Um, so that has the downsides of being highly unsatisfactory. Um, but at least it has the upside, I think, of intellectual modesty and saying we don't know where we don't know. Both the scenarios that you just described, Mr. Fontaine, were essentially the United States winning after a while, you know, so it's whether, you know, China breaks up or if it moderates its ways. But not to be pessimistic, I know you're <laughs> in charge of this <laughs> CNAS, but um, is there any scenario in which, you know, the U.S. and the Western liberal order loses? You know, maybe it's 
you know, such domestic political dysfunction split by, you know, maybe ec- economic disgruntlements or, you know, et cetera. I, I can't even imagine. But is there any possibility that the United States loses? Uh, yeah, there is. And, and, you know, I interpreted the previous question as how does this end on terms favorable to ourselves? Because I think that should be our starting point. But of course, uh, there are multiple other outcomes. One is a war um, that could be you know, extremely destructive. And that is a way of, of, of ending the competition, but in a way that would be so destructive that even if the United States, you know, would prevail, would win the conflict, um, it may lose by a whole bunch of other measures, uh, given the costs that would be associated with, with, you know, U.S.-China war. Uh, but yes, war is, is uh, one uh, way that this that this could end. Um, another is with a general Chinese success in the competition, where you know China overtakes the United States as the most powerful country in the world, and the world accommodates itself to that outcome, ultimately including the United States. And I think that would be a world that is less free. Um, with fewer human rights, where countries are less able to choose their own alliances and alignments and potentially even systems of government. Um, And yet that is an outcome, which is why there is uh, such a priority on, you know, understanding the nature of U.S.-China competition, waging it effectively and urgently, um, but within boundaries that will avoid both the China victory scenario and the U.S.-China war scenario. And that's kind of the great challenge for, for our time right now. Well, Mr. Fontaine, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I look forward to listening to the rest of your episodes, but given that you're doing like 50-something of them, it's going to take me a while. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.